AMU. American Military University is proud to present AMU Disaster Crew. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Glenn Koska, your host, and joining me today is Dr. Kevin Kupietz, who has spent more than 30 years working in the field of emergency management and is a faculty member at American Military University. In addition to teaching, he has been a firefighter and a paramedic for more than 20 years. So, Dr. Kupietz, how are you today? I'm doing great. I hope you're doing good. So we are having the remnants of Zeta pass overhead. So if you hear some wind noises, that's all that is. Indeed. What a crazy hurricane season we've had. I was talking to our colleague, Dr. Christopher Reynolds, a few weeks back on the podcast about how many hurricanes we've had. There's always a lot when you get up into the Greek alphabet, of course, um, which is where we are now. So hopefully it won't be too bad where you are. But today we're going to discuss the coronavirus pandemic. Obviously, it's been the topic of conversation throughout 2020, and it's going to be the same in 2021, I am sure of that. But we're going to talk about it from the angle of emergency and disaster management. So as of today, and we're recording this in late October, there have been almost 9 million cases of COVID-19 in the U.S., resulting in more than 228,000 deaths. And the daily deaths are starting to creep up again a little bit nationwide. So, Kevin, using the current pandemic as a case study, how did the country do with regards to pandemic preparation? And what should our preparedness look like in the future? It's kind of interesting that before COVID hit, uh, United States was actually ranked as the number one country prepared to deal with such an issue. And then when we look at the numbers, when you look at the worldwide numbers, unfortunately, we are actually at the top of the list when it comes to deaths and outbreaks. So something happened between the planning phase of where we thought we were and the actual implementation of that. And that is where we really need to spend some time looking at to focus on so that when the next pandemic happens, we're better prepared in a realistic state than thinking that, you know, everything's going to be fine because we've done A, B, or C. We probably need to be testing more. And the funny thing is, is that, you know, we do these tests, we do tabletops. Most counties are required to do tabletops on a regular basis to be able to get the mass prophylactics out there, to be able to uh, do the vaccinations, the testings on mass scales. But COVID kind of caught us a little bit off guard in several different ways that those plans and those tests that we had done didn't really come to fruition the way that we thought they should happen. So that's an interesting point. It is interesting. And it's interesting to me because having a pandemic in America, it was, it was always a question of when it was going to happen and not if it would happen. We've got contingency plans at the federal level for multiple disasters, earthquakes, hurricanes, flooding, you name it. And there must have been a plan for a pandemic. So... What went wrong in your mind that we came into this, like you said, as the number one prepared country to deal with such a thing? And we have come out, or we haven't come out of it yet, but we're looking as though things aren't going so well. What are your thoughts on it? Well, when we start talking about trying to prepare for any kind of emergency or disaster, we're going by what we think is going to happen. We go by what we think the consequences, what the response will be, what people will do, what the political climate will be. And, you know, all of that is great and fine in 
theory, but then when the rubber hits the road, it doesn't always happen that way. And so you're right, we did have a plan. We had several plans. And this is not the first time that we've had to deal with this kind of issue. The last time we dealt with something on this scale was the flu of 1918. But we've had some really close calls in the recent future. When you look at uh, SARS and Mars and, and Ebola, just a couple of years ago, you know, we were all in a panic over Ebola in Africa, and we ended up with a few cases here in America. And we went through a tremendous amount of planning at the local levels to try to make sure the hospitals were ready, make sure that EMS agencies were prepared to transfer that Ebola patient, to be able to do lockdowns and quarantines and isolations and all the decontaminations. And luckily or unluckily, whichever way we look at it, Ebola really never got a good, strong foothold in America. So I don't think that we were tested to the point that we are now. So the SNS, the, the Strategic National Stockpile, for example, most of us in emergency response, you know, we know about the SNS and we know that, you know, they're there to have this wonderful capability to provide medical equipment and personal protective equipment and, and medications and all of this stuff to areas that need it. And as a responder, as a paramedic, I am used to wearing N95 masks. I'm used to wearing the face shield and, and the double set of rubber gloves and all that stuff. And I'm used to throwing it all away. If you would have asked me two years ago if I would ever reuse an N95 again, I would have looked at you and thought you were crazy. But what it came down to is one of the issues that we ran into is that we didn't have this unlimited supply of personal protective equipment as one example of where... We just didn't follow the exercising and the thought experiments, I guess, far enough out to be able to say, you know, this is when we run out of PPE. This is what's going to happen when everybody in the country is having to fend this off or everybody in the world is having to fend this off. So I think the failure was probably in preparedness and a little bit of that failure might have been in our past successes in the fact that we were pretty confident that we could nail anything that came in before it got too bad. And we've made that mistake in history before. So we have to be really careful that we don't make that mistake in future history. Yeah, I agree with you. Absolutely. And it's just, it's intriguing to me that, like you said, when Ebola virus came to this country somewhat randomly, and it was contained in the hospital in the area where the patient was, but there was a plan that was written up for an Ebola virus pandemic or something similar. I think what makes COVID-19 a little bit different is that, yes, it's quite contagious. Well, it's very contagious, I should say, very infectious and contagious. But at the same time, you don't get the immediate symptoms. So as we've seen all year, there are people who could be walking around who feel perfectly fine but all they have to do is touch something, sneeze, cough anywhere in public, grocery store if they're not wearing a mask or wherever, and uh, then someone else who is going to get symptoms and might get severely ill or even die can pick up the virus. So as far as stopping the spread, how do you think the country has done over the past 10 months in stopping the spread by wearing masks and taking all the social distancing into consideration? Where do we stand? You know, again, that's a, a hard question to answer. When you look at the numbers, the numbers tell one story. When you go out in the streets, you know, hopefully that tells a different story. When you talk about the country's resolve or the world's resolve on being able to solve that, I think that tells a third story. And the truth is probably somewhere in between all of that. 
And so when we look at the infection rate itself, the infection rate of coronavirus, it's like 2.3. So what they're saying is that every individual that contracts coronavirus, they have the potential to actually give that to 2.3 people. And so every time we can pull one of those positive people out of the equation, that's 2.3 people that they're not infecting, then that's 4.6 people that they're not infecting and so on and so forth. And so the numbers cascade very, very quickly. So I think we took some of the steps really well in the fact that we did do isolation and quarantine. Quarantine, of course, for people that we think may have come in contact and isolation, of course, for those people that are tested positive or and are sick. But again, there, there was a little bit of an unknown there that we weren't ready for, we hadn't given enough thought to. Typically, when we think about diseases or things being infectious, we can usually see it. Temperature is usually a really, really good indication. And most illnesses that we have, they're not infectious until we have those signs and symptoms. And you're right, COVID was a little bit of a surprise there for us, because now we're realizing that a person can actually be infectious for typically 48 hours is what we use for contact tracing to be able to infect somebody else before they actually have those signs and symptoms. And then, of course, we have those people that never have signs and symptoms. And we're not really sure still as to how infectious those people are, if they're infectious the entire time that they have the COVID while they're not symptomatic or they're not. So we don't really know. And there are other illnesses and diseases that are transmittable before that. For example, the mumps uh, is probably one of the biggest ones that we know about. The mumps can be transmitted four days prior to a fever. So that means that somebody is walking around and they're actually contagion with that. Some of the COVID numbers are, are kind of interesting. So when you look at that 48 hours, one of the things that they're saying is that uh, most of the infection that someone gives to someone else or the most infectious time that they're at is that day that they're actually going to become symptomatic or that day before they become symptomatic. And that's when they become the most infectious. So I think that one kind of caught us a little bit off guard with that. The other thing is we still really don't know everything that we need to know about coronavirus. And so there's been a lot of speculation, a lot of, I hate to use the word misinformation, but you got to really look at the numbers. You know, here we are, we're, we're in a master's degree program. And the biggest thing that we try to teach our students is critically think and be able to look at the facts, look at the data, look where that data came from. And so when we talk about, you know, it's the spreading of these germs and for a while people were scared because there was a couple of reports that came out said, you know, coronavirus can live up to 21 days, I think one report said on a surface, but that was in a perfect laboratory setting and there was not a test to be able to see if that was enough coronavirus to actually be able to infect somebody. So I hate to avoid your question, but it's a really a loaded question that we don't know all of the answers to. But we're, we're trying to get a better handle on this. And actually, you know, for years to come, we'll probably be looking at COVID and trying to figure out exactly what the extent of the damage is or will be to people that maybe even had it. Right. Now, I guess in that regard, the one positive that we might take from all of this is that if COVID-23 happens in a few years from now, for instance, we might be able to, well, we'll definitely be able to look at it and say, okay, well, this is what went wrong the last time, and this is what we did right. But you're right about the misinformation. Obviously, everybody's on Facebook and Twitter and everything, social media every day, and the feed comes in and you see all of these alarming things. And you're right. I remember seeing that alarming headline which said that the coronavirus can stay on a surface for 21 days. And I was thinking coins 
a countertop, a shopping cart. And I still would have thought that had you not just told me the facts, which is that it was in a perfect laboratory setting and it was on a perfect surface. And there might have been a lot more virus on that surface than you'd get on a shopping cart. So that is a major problem, isn't it? This misinformation that's out there. It is. And the misinformation is for a couple of reasons. You know, social media can be a great platform to be able to get information out timely. Emergency management, we use it regularly, try to feel the pulse for what's going on in the community, but also to send out our message. But it can also be that double-edged sword. It can be that curse as well when you start talking about the misinformation that can be given. One of my favorite examples of the misinformation was there was a huge Facebook issue for a while where they were saying you should not wear a mask because masks will give you Legionnaire's disease. And that one was just totally, totally wrong. So, you know, one of the things that we did, you know, with our students and stuff is we actually started posting out there on, on Facebook the facts and actually citing our facts. And so that's another problem that we have when we start talking about that misinformation. A lot of times the facts aren't cited so that we can actually go back and look at them like we teach our college students to do in their normal papers. The professionals aren't doing that. So we can actually go back and look at, you know, how did they come up with this in the laboratory? What does this really mean in terms of real life? So if you look at what the CDC puts out there right now, they're saying that the primary mode of transmission for this, of course, is that face-to-face contact less than six feet for more than 15 minutes. But now they're also saying that because we don't know everything, that the potential is there that you can get it from picking up the virus on your hands and then rubbing your hand in your eye or, or your mouth or some other kind of mucous membrane. And they're saying even with pets, we're not sure about that. They're saying, you know, there's not been a case that we can prove yet. But, you know, we do know that the pets can carry the virus and maybe it's possible that we get that. And there are people that have come down with coronavirus that we're not exactly sure how they got it. So the potential is still there. But when we talk about the vast majority of it, it is that face-to-face contact that we know how to protect each other about. And with the misinformation, I think a really important thing that we have to look at is why the misinformation is there, but also we have to look at why are we not trusting the CDC, for example. You know, the CDC for decades has been that revered organization that we trusted, that we believed in. And then all of a sudden with COVID, because some of the the things that came out of the office, a couple of the the missteps maybe they made in the beginning or, or a couple of things that they really weren't sure about in the beginning, some of that trust, I think, eroded. But I saw an interesting study where someone actually looked to see who the public would actually believe, because there's a lot of controversy over the vaccine and the craziness about putting a spy bot in the vaccine where they can track you and stuff like this. But the study actually asked people, you know, who do you trust to take a vaccine? And someone told you to take the vaccine, who would you trust? More than 50% of them said that they would trust their local healthcare provider, which is good. Most people said that it would still trust organizations such as the CDC and the WHO, the World Health Organization, and the Center for Disease Control. What was interesting was, is that more people answered that they would not take the vaccine if politicians tried to get them to take it, than if nobody told them to take it. (laughs) So that kind of goes to the whole trust issue. Yes, it does. I think I know who I'd be trusting if somebody told me that they had a vaccine in their hand. And that would be the health officials that you mentioned. The vaccine is one thing, and it's being promised to us practically every other day. It's just around the corner, but realistically, I'm not sure it's going to be here anytime soon. And we are approaching the flu season. Now, of course, the flu season kills, on average, about 40,000 people each season. 
And that's without COVID-19 interfering with it. And the winter months are going to be a very interesting time because we've been looking, obviously, at what's happened since March and April, but then it's just each month after March and April in most of America, it gets warmer and warmer and warmer. And now we're entering the time in most of America when it gets colder and colder and colder. And viruses love the indoors, which is where everybody's going to be when it's cold. And they're going to be having their heat cranked up. So the mucous membranes and the nose are going to start to get a little bit more bloody, to use a nasty term. But it's true. I mean, it's the truth. And viruses love blood, too. So what are we going to do that's different as we approach the flu season, do you think? Well, again, when we look at the whole COVID thing, this is something that we should have been prepared about. When we look at the numbers for the flu, the, the numbers for the flu really have not changed in several decades. And again, the flu is an airborne virus, just like COVID is. So hopefully what will happen is that, you know, we're maintaining our social distancing. We're, we're doing the masking when we're supposed to. We're, we're washing our hands. We're doing those three W's. And hopefully by lowering the number or trying to lower the number of COVID, hopefully that's going to lower the number of the flu as well. But, you know, a huge point here that I really hope that people take after we've conquered this COVID thing, I hope people will go back and look at this and say, you know, why aren't we doing this for every pandemic. So just like you said, the flu kills anywhere between 20 and 65,000 people every single year. And we've come to accept that. And for whatever reason, yes, COVID, the fatality rate is higher. It's like a 3.1 compared to the fatality rate of the flu of 0.1. But we need to be thinking about how can we transmit or how can we keep some of these good habits that we're actually doing now and how can we keep them in place in order to be able to reduce the number of flu that we have or other infectious illnesses that we deal with every year that keep kids out of school, keep people out of work, so on and so forth. You know, just the whole idea of with COVID, we're saying if you've got a temperature, don't come to work. In fact, employers are even saying if you've got a temperature, don't come to work. I'm not going to let you in. Why weren't we doing that with the flu? You know, how many times have we had organizations that were seriously crippled for days or weeks because they had a flu outbreak in their plant or their facility or in their school? And that was okay. We didn't think much of that. So I'm hoping in the long run that what we see is that the flu numbers will actually be down this year. But, you know, it's going to be interesting to see if those type of precautions that we're taking for COVID are actually going to help us with the flu or not. It's also kind of interesting to see when you look at the hospital numbers, the fact that the typical person right now doesn't want to go to the hospital or to go to the doctor's office because they're afraid they're going to get sick there. So if someone does have the flu symptoms, which we do have treatments for, are they going to recognize it soon enough? And are they going to get the treatment soon enough? Or are they going to not. And then they're going to be past that window that we can treat the flu and they're going to become iller and the consequences are going to be more severe for them. Yes. The point about the flu for me, and I agree with you 100 percent, is that the flu has been around for centuries. We've had the Spanish flu in, like you mentioned at the beginning of the podcast, in 1918 was when it peaked. We've had Asian flu. We've had Hong Kong flu in the 60s. We've had all these different strains of flu. And the common garden variety influenza, whichever strain it might be this winter, it's going to be there. And like you said, it's important to see those flu numbers because I agree with you. We are all able now to work from home. 
it's not anything new. We've been able to work from home for a long time. But now, because of Zoom taking off, students don't have to go to school. People don't have to go to their workplace. Like you said, the employers are saying, don't come in. Now, had we employed those sort of tactics over the last 10, 15, or 20 years that it's been possibly capable to be doing these sort of meetings, why weren't we doing it? And if we can learn anything from this, it should be, let's just keep doing it. Why wouldn't we continue all of these precautions, even when COVID-19 is a thing in the past? Because by doing it, we are going to protect ourselves from the flu, measles, the mumps, and all these other infectious diseases, right? Yeah. And and a lot of what we're doing right now is cultural-based. And I think that's one of the issues that we're having with it. You and I weren't brought up in a culture that is the COVID culture now. We weren't brought up where you wash your hands every time you touch something. In fact, you know, my parents thought it was all right, you know, that you ate some dirt. In fact, you know, what was that old saying? You had to eat a a pint of dirt before you turned 18 in order to be able to fight off the other infections. (laughs) Right. So I think there are some differences that we have to look at, you know, and hopefully we're raising a generation of kids that will become adults that are going to be more conscious of that. The one thing we have to make sure in order to be able to do that, though, is we hope that a vaccine does show up for for COVID. We hope that the lessons that we're learning here aren't forgotten like they were for the Spanish flu. We hope that we don't think, well, you know, we beat that. So uh, we beat H1N1, we beat SARS, so we don't have to worry about the next one. If some of these things were in place, I think we would be in a better position to be able to implement some of this stuff. So I hear people all the time talk about China. You know, this disease happened in China and China's at the bottom of the list when it comes to deaths. And United States is at the top. And we think that we have a better healthcare system and we think that we have better handle on this stuff. But some of the things that are in the Chinese culture kind of predispose them to be able to hit this quicker. You know, I don't want pollution in our air like what they have, but it's nothing for them to wear a mask over there on a regular daily basis. Here, when we ask people to wear a mask, you know, that was a huge culture shock. In fact, right now, you know, it's still a huge culture shock to a lot of people. So somehow we have to bring the next generation to realize, you know, some of this stuff is all right to do and it, it may be actually healthy to do. Absolutely. And I'm a logical person, and I'm sure you are, obviously, in your uh, line of work. And logic to me says, that wearing a mask is a no-brainer. And you mentioned China. Well, look at Japan, too, and South Korea. When you look at the size of those countries and the the amount of people per square mile compared to the people per square mile in America, Japan and South Korea barely got any kind of infection rate. I mean, they had the infection rate, but but their numbers were much lower as far as the uh, cases and the deaths. And the reason is, in my opinion, because people were 100% almost following all of the precautions. And like you said, it's not uncommon for people to wear masks if they're worried about air pollution. Now, I'm not sure how many people percentage-wise walk around any U.S. city wearing a mask just because they're worried about air pollution. Not many, I would think. And I'm not sure that's going to change unless the government changes the practices that are out there right now and the way they could change it. And of course, it would be at a state level. I doubt that it would be at a federal level, but each of the states, they could implement rules and regulations just like they did this year for COVID to say, hey, you know what? All these signs on the floor, which say keep six feet apart and all these signs, which says you need to wear a mask to come in here and you need to um, wash your hands and you need to use this and I'm going to check your temperature. If it can be done, and I I know there's money involved and expense, but if it can be done, just 
keep everything in place because it's not going to hurt the situation by keeping it in place. Yeah, I think there's some simple things that we can actually continue to to implement. Why do we not have hand washing stations or uh, alcohol dispensers in the stores when we go and we're touching different things? You know, that's something that's fairly easy to put up and, and to maintain. I have to say, you know, I'm I'm hoping that we don't have to wear masks forever. But there are some other things that we can do. The social distancing thing, there really is no reason why we have to cram bunches of people into small areas like we do a lot of times. You know, and then again, that cultural thing, we're used to standing in line back to back to back. Do we really need to do that? You know, is there really a purpose in that? Or can we just kind of spread out a little bit, give each other a little bit of room? So I think there's some really simple things in here that we can do. I don't see that there's a problem with having employees check their temperature when they come to work or before they even come to work, asking them to do that. Again, you know, anytime they have an infection, there's a good possibility that they have an illness that's going to be infectious to others while they actually have that fever. So why would we want them on our plant floor where we could actually have other people become sick and then we lose our productivity? So I really do think that there's stuff like that. When we look at this as the case study and we move forward for future pandemics, that we look at that. The other thing that we really need to look at is what has worked for us well and what did we really struggle at with COVID-19? So in the past, you know, H1N1, almost all businesses and industries put together uh, some kind of response plan. You know, what is going to be our continuity of operations business plan if people get sick? The avian flu, the SARS, all of this stuff was done. But I know so many businesses and organizations that when COVID hit, they weren't ready for it. And I asked them, I said, well, where's your H1N1 plan? Where's your pandemic plan? Because really, we don't want an H1N1 plan or a COVID plan. We want a pandemic plan. How are we going to respond to whatever that infectious illness is? And they're like, well, you know, it just didn't quite fit. So we're just going to run the whole thing over from scratch. But that takes time. And time is something we don't have in these instances. And I think that's one of the things that happened to the world is that we thought we had a little bit more time with COVID and then come to find out COVID was probably running around a little bit before we knew about it. And that's probably what caused us to not have control of it from the get-go like we did with Ebola or Mars or H1N1. And it's worth pointing out, of course, that we got quote-unquote lucky with, if you can say that, about this particular pandemic. Because yes, this is the worst pandemic that we've had in U.S history, other than the Spanish flu, of course. But the point is that here it is, and it's something that is quite contagious, but not as deadly as Ebola or some other strain of uh, deadly virus, a hemorrhagic fever type. How would we have dealt with that? I mean, how do we have dealt with something as deadly as Ebola? And what can we do to make sure that on a county level, state level, federal level, we're ready for the next pandemic, because the next one might be something like Ebola, which is really contagious. And the mortality rate is closer to 90%. Yeah. And people get really upset when you say that, when you try to make that point that this could be a lot worse. And I understand that. This is one of the issues that we have in our country, I know for sure. People either kind of They're all about, we need to be safe. We need to make sure that we're taking care of COVID. Then there are those people that really don't believe it. And then you have some people in between. And that perception, I really believe, is based on what their experiences has been with that illness or that disease. And so, for example, you know, when I I was deployed at different places trying to help with the COVID response with the national response team, 
it is really disheartening when you see people younger than you that look healthy and they're dying from this disease within a couple of days. When you see the family members outside the hospitals waving flags and doing dances and, and holding up birthday cards for their relatives, hoping that they will see them because they're not able to come into the hospital. Those are the type of things that we need to think about and make sure that we actually understand that. And unfortunately, if we don't experience it, there's a different level of perception. So we talked about the fact that COVID-19 has a a 3.1% mortality rate is is what they're estimating at right now. We talked about the flu being probably about 0.1. We don't know for sure because we really are not required to report the death as a flu. It's usually as a complication or something like that. But when you look at Ebola, the mortality rate for that if you look at the WHO website, you know, they claim it at about 50% because the numbers range anywhere from 25 to 90% mortality rate. But even at a 25% fatality, that's a huge bump up in number of the 3.1 that we're dealing with now. Mm-hmm. So we have to be looking at the future and saying, okay, you know, COVID is bad. We have a lot of deaths with COVID. It's surpassed the normal flu season deaths. But what if that next one is going to even be worse? What are we going to do? And for us to do that, we have to have that pandemic plan in place and we have to be ready to know that we're ready to actually initiate what that plan is. So I think we had some issues with that at the beginning as well. So we did have a plan in the United States on on different things to do. We had an idea of quarantining and isolating. But even if you go back to the cruise ships when they first came in, there was a lot of fighting politically and legally to keep the quarantine areas out of different locations because the communities there were scared of the fact that they didn't want to bring these people that potentially had this new disease into their community. And so therefore, uh, if you look at Costa Mesa, for example, the judge put an 11-day injunction on deciding whether or not they could put COVID passengers contacts, they weren't even cases, contacts into the city for 11 days. So by the time you had them in there for 11 days to make your decision, their quarantine of 14 days was almost over. So we have to be able to look forward. We have to be able to say, okay, this is our plan. This is what we're going to do to implement it. And we have to have the fortitude, I guess, to be able to follow through on that. Because I agree, there are definitely people out there that would disagree with this, but I agree with you in the fact that there are potential scenarios that are much, much worse than the one that we're facing now. We need to be better prepared for that. We do eight, almost nine million cases of something that has a 3.1 percentage mortality rate. If there was nine million cases of something that had a 50 to 90 percent mortality rate, the deaths, we have 228 COVID-19 deaths. I can't even contemplate what that would be like. This is Glenn Koska, your host, and we'll be right back. To handle massive damage from natural and man-made disasters, today's first responders need specialized training. Get started down your next training path in emergency and disaster management with a degree from American Military University. You'll learn from highly experienced practitioners in the field. Take the next step and apply today at amuonline.com. And we're back. Okay, uh, Kevin, let's let's move on to uh, the continuity of operations, which is a great subject that we can uh, work into this discussion. What are your thoughts on that going forward? Where do we stand on a local level, a state level, a federal level? What do you see happening in the future if this thing gets worse? Hopefully it won't get worse, but I think that what we've seen is we've seen that organizations have realized that there has to be 
alternative plans. So in the emergency management world, we call this a business of continuity or, or continuity of operations planning, COOP. And the whole idea with that is, is that if something happens, no matter what that something is, is that the business is able to continue on or the organization is able to continue on with at least its core mission and be able to be able to survive the disaster. So typically we think of a disaster as a hurricane or an earthquake or a fire, you know, something that is relatively short-lived and compared to this pandemic that we're dealing with that is going to go well into the next year. So we're nine months in, we're going to probably be well past a year by the time we conquer this. So there has to be this operation. If you look at the numbers right now, Forbes, I think it was the other day, they actually reported that they're saying it was 997,000 businesses that they know have, have gone out of businesses and will never reopen now. Right. If you look at the New York Times, they're talking about over 100,000 businesses. And some other organizations are saying, you know, we can't even calculate. It's just unfathomable to think about how many businesses will not be able to survive and reopen from this. And when we think about the, the small and medium businesses being 60% of the employment for any normal community, this is going to be a huge hit that we're going to be having to deal with for years and, and in some cases, generations. So the continuity of operation goes again back to what we're talking about. You know, We have to be planning for this pandemic. And it's not just a government that has to be planning. It really needs to be everybody that's planning because the businesses and the organizations, if they want to be able to survive that disaster, whether it be a tornado, a hurricane or a pandemic, they have to be able to figure out what that plan is. I think a prime example of us not being prepared for continuity of operations is when we look at our K through 12. So when we look at our educational system, they had to go to alternative learning styles is what they called it in the spring semester of last year. And the college's higher education were, for the most part, ready for that because a lot of our students do online education. But the K through 12, you know, that wasn't something that they were ready for. And I think that showed last semester. And I think we're seeing some of this again. And the question I've always had is, you know, when people talk about snow days for school, is why do we have snow days? Why do we not have a continuity of operation for our school systems where the school's kids have an assignment to do? If they can't come to school, then we have something for them to do. And so, you know, now one of my classes is raising the question, why do we not have built into the school year a remote learning day? where we actually practice doing remote learning so that if something does happen that we can't go to school because of snow, a fire, pandemic, whatever, that the teachers and the students are actually more prepared. We've actually tested the systems with that. So I think continuity of operations is incredibly important as part of that planning process. I really think that what you're going to see is emergency management has always been considered to be that job that is the local, state, or federal job. And we know in the field that we have a lot of private industries that have those professions. And I think what we're going to see in the near future is we're going to see a really high demand for people with emergency management experience to try to be able to help these smaller sized organizations be better prepared to make sure that they're able to survive these type of events. Absolutely. But I, I got to tell you, I think my uh, my 13-year-old son is not going to be happy about hearing the no snow days suggestion. But it's true. There is no reason why now, and, and what's happened in the past 12 months has proved that things can continue with the right apparatus in place and the right plan and contingency operations in place. Things can continue as normal or semi-normal, and uh, there's no reason why that shouldn't happen in the future. Now, speaking of the future, we have an election coming up. As I said earlier, we're recording this in late October, just a few days before the election. 
And if there was one thing, obviously, that affected the race for the White House in 2020, the only thing really has been the response to coronavirus. So what are your thoughts on that, Kevin? How's it been uh, perceived by uh, each side of the political aisle? Well, it's interesting that you talk about that because both sides have their story to it. In an emergency management, we have to remember to try to be as apolitical as possible. We don't make the policies. To be involved in politics, in theory, is not part of our job, although we know that politics dictate what happens on our job regularly. The whole idea of whether we did a good job or a bad job, of course, you know, that enters into the political debates of of who should be the next president, senator, congresswoman, uh, even down to the mayors. You'll hear some of this stuff being talked about. But I think the real impact that this has had is on the electoral process itself in the fact that, you know, here we are with COVID. We can't have these huge crowds at the voting stations on one particular day like we've had in the past. So we've looked at ways to overcome that. And so if you look at the numbers from the early polling, I know North Carolina, we're at like 53% of the registered voters have already voted. And when you look at other states, we're kind of there already. Voting, when I went to vote, it was clean. There was a woman standing there with a rag. And just as soon as you walked away, I mean, she was wiping that stuff down. They were on top of that. So I think that goes to a long way to show, you know, what that resiliency is, how we can actually think about what are our core missions that we have to do in order to be able to keep the process moving the way that it needs to. And we can continue to move forward with that. Now, also remember that the COVID-19 thing is is this huge, complex issue that is it's a lot more than just, you know, being able to vote. It's a lot more about who has what stance. You know, at the end of the day, somebody has to make that decision over the safety versus the economics of things. Luckily, as an emergency manager, that's not my decision to make. But that's going to be the hard decision that someone's going to have to make down the road. So to say that this has uh, had an impact on the politics of 2020, I think that's a certainty. So this might be the prototype for future elections as well. I don't see any reason in the future why this sort of thing couldn't keep going, because it is safer in the long run. And you mentioned earlier that it's part of our society that people are pretty close together in crowds. They're walking around, they go to sporting events, they go to concerts, they sit next to each other at work and at lunch and in the cafeteria at work. And it's a very close-knit society that we have. And this has fundamentally changed all of that. I mean, we are going to be living in a post-COVID world, and our children are not going to know much different. And there's some positive things to take from that, because a post-COVID world will have, hopefully, more things in place, more precautions in place that could prevent people becoming infected and dying, not just from coronavirus, but from other diseases as well. Yeah, I often wonder you know, what my grandchildren are going to think or my great-grandchildren will think when they look back at pictures of people wearing masks you know, 20 years ago. Are they going to think that that's a, a normal thing, or are they going to say, wow, those people were really weird back then? Yeah. So it'll be kind of interesting to see. It will be interesting to see, won't it? It's going to be an interesting decade for sure. Well, Kevin, I think this has been a great discussion. I want to thank you for joining me today on the podcast, and I hope to have you as a guest uh, very soon in the near future. Thanks for joining me. Absolutely. And thank you for having me. Anytime we get a chance to talk about preparedness and planning, we have the opportunity to save lives and property. That's always a good day. Thank you. 
This is Glenn Kosker. I'd like to thank you for joining us today and listening to this podcast and stay tuned for the next one in the coming weeks. For more information about our university, visit us at amuonline.com. Thank you for listening. AMU, American Military University.